It's time to turn out the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve into the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, I can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. So if you've made a horror movie on your phone, or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send them my way. Now, what do you get when you take Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, comic books, and a twist? Why, you get unbreakable. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast. And, as you may tell, uh, my voice is not 100% back. Um, It still sounds better than it did a couple days ago, but uh, in between the recordings of this this episode and the last episode, uh, I was with my company at the CES convention, which was a lot of fun, but it took a toll on me talking. So, um... (laughs) yesterday was horrible. It was even worse than what I'm recording right now. So we're at a good speed. Um, I hope everything turns out okay, but there might be times where it may sound a little awkward as I'm trying to get my voice back for talking. Uh, so please excuse the episode. Uh, so we're here for all of January. We're talking about Unbreakable and Split. So it's not a surprise of what we're doing, I explained it in the last episode, but this is all gearing up to glass. Now, I'm going to say this right away, there's not going to be a regular glass-like podcast review. Um, maybe when the film comes out, depending on how it turns out, uh, when it's finally available for like video on demand or DVD, Blu-ray, whatever it is, then maybe we'll do something, but what is going to happen is that when the split episode is released... Either a day or two after, I'm going to release a YouTube video uh, that will be the review. Like the car reviews that I normally do if you guys ever watch it. And if it turns out that it can fit kind of like the um, Slenderman review, if it can turn into a podcast where I don't need to like talk about a lot or do all that stuff, then maybe I'll just upload it, the audio from that as a bonus podcast. I'm not sure. But it's going to be around the same time the split review, because I believe after the week after this is released, then it's going to be glass. But in terms of when I'm going to see it, because, you know, I like doing it with my buddies, uh, you know, Big Ben, the Angry Dad, uh, and as well as with Pat, the Paranormal Pativity uh, podcast guy. <laughs> guy? <laughs> I don't know what it's going there with there. But... Um, you know, I want to go see it with them as well, so I'm going to be actually seeing it a week after it's released. Unless, of course, you know, he's an asshole while he's in Hawaii and goes and sees it with the fam, and then I get a text message, oh, we just want saw a glass, and then I'm going to be like, fuck, so I'm going to go see it by myself, or I'll drag the wife to go see it or something like that. But, yeah, so expect there will be a review for glass. It just might not be, like... The standard, like the way I do these reviews, and the primary reason is because 
Uh, I'm not going to sneak the fucking camera in there or record all of the audio while I'm watching the movie just so that I can get audio for the podcast. Though, we'll see how everything turns out. Um, I'm really excited for it. I know as of today, the review embargo was lifted, and I'm not looking to even hear anything about the movie. I don't want to know any type of reviews, because there are certain Shyamalan movies uh, that are great, and then there are certain that are terrible. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at you, The Happening, uh, as well as Lady in the Water. Um, it's kind of a weird situation because I remember, you know, was with it everybody. The Sixth Sense was this film that all of a sudden came out of the middle of nowhere. Oh my god, it's got this huge fucking twist of an ending. Um, what could it possibly be? And it was fun going back and watching the movie a second time. And it was, you know, when I was in younger generation and I'd go back to the theaters to watch it again. So I'd go see it with my friends. And then my parents would be like, yeah, you want to go see, you know, whatever movie it is? Oh yeah, I'll totally go again. Where nowadays it's kind of like, uh, I'd rather spend my time doing something else unless I extremely enjoy the movie. But, Seeing it a second time, seeing it a third and fourth time, you get to see all these little clues of what he was giving you and what he was letting you know that, you know, spoiler alert for a movie that came out way fucking long time ago, that Bruce Willis was dead. I mean, it's jokes, it's everything. You've never seen The Sixth Sense. What the fuck are you doing? You should actually see that movie. It's one of the best movies, like, ever. Um, so his follow-up movie was this, Unbreakable. And I remember going to see it with a bunch of college friends and thinking about, you know, what is this going to be like? It looks so interesting. You know, this guy, you don't get much from it. Guy survives a train wreck. And then they start talking about comic books and superhero powers. And maybe they might be real. I know it's not horror, but I was still super interested, you know, when it came to this film and seeing it in the theaters. And I remember sitting through and watching it and just being like, man, like, it's, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say this up front because this also goes with the audio. It's slow. It is a slow build. And maybe when I was watching it, I was kind of seeing where the story was going. Because when I was watching it this time, I felt it a little bit. But the, like, the way that everything gets set up. And the way that they interact with each other is so good. The dialogue in this is so good. The camera work... Oh, man. This is where I have a love-hate relationship with uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Um, I love the way he does, does some of his camera work. And I hate the way he does some of his camera work. Like, in this film, there are scenes... And we'll talk about a couple of them. But there are some scenes where it's like amateur hour. It truly is, like the way that he moves the camera back and forth and the way that he sets up the shot. It's just kind of like, oh, come on, dude. Like, is this your, like, student project or something like that? The way that you're trying to... I don't know what you're trying to do and how you're trying to frame this. Like, you can kind of tell that the sixth sense went to his head. Like, he had such success with that movie and it was done so well that he was like, oh, I'm a true artiste. Rather than just kind of whatever made The Sixth Sense great made that movie, you like, use that for this movie. But then there are those shots in this movie just like that that are so good. Like, you know, there's... And one of these days, I'm going to have to do the House of Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects things. 
But it's like watching Rob Zombie. This is the best way that I can... And I know Dave, you know, he's probably going to be like, no, it's not exactly the same. But in my opinion, it is. Because sometimes some of Rob Zombie's shots are so, like, kind of basic. But then you get that shot from, like, House of Thousand Corpses where it's nothing but silence and he's going up into the air and it's getting higher and higher and you know what's going to happen to the police officer. He's just going to get shot. But there's that, like, tension delay and it's such a beautiful fucking scene. And that's what you get in this, too. You get these beautiful fucking scenes. You know, like, spoiler, I have to, like, say it right now, but, like, the scene where glass falls down the stairs, and we'll talk about that, that's a beautiful fucking scene. Like, oh my god, even watching it again, I was like, this is fucking amazing. Why can't you do this all the time instead of doing one of the first scenes of the movie we'll talk about when we get into the movie? So... I, you know, he's done so many interesting films, and there's one where, like, I feel like he's a much better writer than he is director, and I know some people don't necessarily like the film, but I really liked Devil, uh, and that's the one where there's a bunch of people of an elevator, and the devil happens to be in there, and he's gonna take the souls, and one by one, everybody dies off, right, and then you figure out who the devil is. The way that it's done is kind of, eh, but the story itself and the way the characters are written, I really like. So that's why when I think of M. Night Shyamalan, I really think of him being more of a writer than a director. So, and yes, things sometimes can get really clumsy, even if it's an entertaining movie. Like, I'm mixed on signs. A lot of people really like it. It, for me, it's the ending that kind of kills that movie for me. But that's where it's kind of a mixly written. Like, things don't make sense. But the tension scenes in that movie are pretty well done. It's the same thing with The Village. The Village is kind of right in the middle of everything, where moments are really, really, really good. And then in other parts, are just kind of like, eh, what the hell are you doing? You know, and, it, and that suffers from the writing in both of those movies, in my opinion. But then we have Unbreakable and Split. Um, and they both kind of more suffer from the direction than the writing. Now, I'm going to see if Split holds up. And I really want to see if Unbreakable holds up. And I'm going to give this right now. You need to see Unbreakable before you watch this or listen to this podcast. It's, watch this podcast, what the hell's wrong with me? Uh, but, <laughs> you really do. Like, if you choose not to, that's fine. I mean, it's an older movie, you may know what the exact, like, twist is in this film, because maybe you saw Split first. Maybe you've seen the trailers for Glass everywhere. But you don't know where it gets to that point, and how it, he, like, shadows everything and hides it from you until it's released like i don't even want to say what it is even though you might know what it is uh like i said with all the trailers for glass you kind of figure it out but how do we get to that point like is this film actually like that is being depicted right is it well honestly no this was a shock i remember seeing the ending to this film and was like holy crap and like even watching it this time I've, holy crap, like how everything got set up and where the clues are that would have led me to that point. So 
it's a movie where if you've never seen either of these before, before each of these podcasts, please try to watch the movie if you can. I know it's very hard to watch Unbreakable. You basically need to rent it from like Amazon or iTunes or YouTube. I think somebody actually has it uploaded for free on YouTube. So you could try to find that, but how long is it going to stay there? Who knows? Um, it's probably like go to box within a box within a box within an enigma and you gotta like solve all these puddles and then you're like, God damn red litter, why are you always doing this shit to me? I don't need your fucking trophies. Oh, wait, wrong, wrong thing. But, you know, it's still worth a watch, but again, if you just wanna listen to this first, cause I know there's a lot of people that do listen to the podcast that go to the movies afterwards because Whatever I do makes them want to see the film, which is great. I love that. Especially when it's a film I love and maybe you've never seen before. When it's a film I hate, honestly, you don't need to spend that time. Unless you really, really want to. Or unless there's something I can't give. Like, the best example I can say is, like, Mandy. I recently saw Mandy. I think everybody that is interested in it should see it. Because visually... I think it's fantastic. I think it's worth it. It's worth seeing the colors. It's worth seeing the Cheddar Goblin. Yes, please go look that up. I have uh, sent that to a couple people. Um, but, uh, you know, like, go out and watch it. I understand not everybody is going to be able to do that right away because the way that it's being delivered online, I mean, you can rent it or Shutter has it if you have Shutter. Or, you know what, attach your shutter to your Amazon. Or maybe you live in a country where you can't access shutter. Who knows? But, you know, it's one of those films where I'd say, watch it. But, honestly, personally, it wasn't one of my, like, favorite films of the year. But, let's go ahead and get started with Unbreakable. So, the film actually opens with Elijah. And Elijah's being born, and something is very, very wrong. This is Mr. Matheson. He's a doctor. Are you okay? An ambulance is on the way. Thank you. Is there a name yet? Elijah? Is he supposed to be crying like this? We just wanted to come right out, and there were no problems. Did you drop him? What? Did you drop this baby? Jesus Christ, no. Inform the ambulance that we have a situation. Um. Ma'am, I've never seen this. It appears that your baby has sustained some fractures while inside your uterus. His arms and his legs are broken. So here we get the introduction to Elijah, 
And we find out that he's, and I'm totally going to, like, mess this up and murder the way that this is actually pronounced. But it's type 1 osteogenesis imperfecta. Okay, I think I actually did a very good job of that, to be completely honest with you. But it's explained a little more later when we start talking between David and Elijah. Um, so he's born basically with broken limbs right out the bat, and that's why he's crying so much. And then the film fades over, and we go and we see Bruce Willis. Now, I'm going to warn you uh, right up. Like, when you heard that clip, everything sounded normal and fine. Uh, and I forgot to do this before we even started, so please excuse me. But, um, like I said, this this movie was slow. And the movie is slow is because there's so many fucking, like, silent pauses between lines of dialogue. And to make sure that you guys don't sit through it, um, I got rid of a lot of it. Now, I got better as the time went through, but I was so far in, I didn't want to redo half the clips that I did. So, uh, sorry, that's me being a little lazy in <laughs> getting this done. But you'll hear, like, they're almost talking one after another. And the scenes, in, in one case... Okay, to give you a best example and why this movie is so goddamn slow in that regard. There was one scene I recorded almost three minutes of audio. And then I truncated the silence down. And when I truncated it down, it came down to a minute and 20 seconds. Almost over half the fucking clip was fucking silence. Silence. It's literally just him going in there saying, uh, David, yeah? Um, I think we should go to the store and get some eggs. What do you think? Oh, that sounds great. We'll, we'll make sure we do that. And that's like the way that it fucking goes. It's so fucking ridiculous. So when you hear some of these auto clips, please don't be alarmed. It's not as quick as it is. It is a little bit slower. The movie itself is a slow burn. And while you're watching it, it's not so bad. But I didn't realize it until I was getting the fucking audio. So at times, it's going to be really, really quick. It's going to feel that way. But like I said, towards the end of the audio, or in the middle ground somewhere, I decided to leave a little more silent space in there so it doesn't feel like it's so quick. And also because when it pulls the audio, it's so low and I have to you know boost it up so it sounds good for the podcast, um, It the music might sound like it jumps a little bit. So please, uh, I'm... Uh, Trying to get better, but that was amazing, like, how much I would cut out. I think there was even one scene where it was, like, almost three, close to three minutes as well. When I cut it down, it went to 42 seconds. So it's, like, it's ridiculous how much dead air is in this movie. So, anyway, so now, speaking of dead air, oh, hey, no, that's broken air. Uh, but, yeah, so Elijah, he has this, like, really bad you know, condition that basically makes his bones super brittle. So he has to learn to live with that. And that's where the movie starts in 1961. We go to Bruce Willis and he's on the train and he's coming home from a job interview back in New York. See, he and his wife are having some problems, but they never explain exactly what those problems are and who is actually the one with the problem. And the other thing that you got to realize here is that David looks depressed. Like Bruce Willis looks depressed Throughout the whole fucking movie. Like, he always has his face down. He's barely... Yeah. Uh, I, I'll go there. Okay. And I'll I'll do this. And... Yeah. Like, that's like the way that he talks throughout most of the fucking movie. 
So even in the scene when he's trying to hit on this, like, sports agent lady or the recruiter or where the fuck she is, like, there's no way that he even seems like he's remotely kind of charming because of the way his face looks. It's like they took Droopy Dog and put it over as an inlay on top of Bruce Willis's face, and everything's just kind of drooping down. Boom, thanks for no me. Like, that type of thing. I know that's Eeyore, but I always forget what Droopy Dog says, so fuck you. <laughs> but it's just like, even, like, he awkwardly hits on her, and this is where I really, like, this is where I fear it's kind of like amateur hour. See, there's a little girl that's in front of him, and she's looking back at him, and we're supposed to, I believe, be that little girl for the camera shot for this one. So when he first, when we see Bruce Willis, and he looks down, he says, hi, you know, and she's like, oh, hi. And then he's there, and the sports agent girl, which looks, she looks kind of cute, you know. And he starts, he puts away his ring in his pocket and stuff. And then when that, while they're talking about what the fuck they want to talk about, like, he's trying to hit on her, and it's really fucking awkward. But the camera just moves back and forth in between the seats. So in that little viewing area that you have, it's like the kid is looking at the girl, then looking at Bruce Willis, then looking at the girl, then looking at David, and back and forth until she gets like, oh, I'm married. And he's like, oh, that's not what I meant. Like, he's like, how long are you staying in Philadelphia? And she's like, I'm married. And he's like, oh, no, uh, that's not what I was trying to do. I wasn't fucking hitting on Yeah, you were fucking hit on her, okay? Uh, and so... She leaves, and then the girl even gives him, like, a face that looks like she's upset by the fact that he even tried, or that, like, man, you are really fucking socially awkward, aren't you? So, we have this scene that, it's just weird. It's it's meant to put up some type of preface that, you know, he's having problems with. Is he, like, really a smarmy guy as a scene here? I don't really know. Like, when you're watching this, I call him a fucking smarmy bastard. Because, you know, he takes off his wedding ring and he tries to hit on the girl and he probably, you know, more than likely shouldn't be doing that if he's married. But at the same time, you find out a little later that he and his wife are having problems, right? But it's never really explained what those problems are, like what's going on in their relationship. All you know is what started it. You don't know what's happening right now and whether or not it's actually her. And I feel like we... Again, it's it's so hard to like talk about this right now when it's going to come up much later in the film. But during the scene when we do talk about it, I feel like it's her that is the one that's been having the problems for whatever they are. But I'd like to know. It's like this thing that's just kind of out there. And I really want to understand why we're in this situation and why it's so important to the film. Like why they make it, oh, because he's going to be leaving to New York. And he pushes everybody away, but why does he do that? So it's like, there's a problem that he's doing that goes to her, and she's making a decision, and instead of him trying to work with it, his idea is just, you know what, it's better if you guys are left alone, I'll go find something in New York, and I'll go live over there, and that's going to be that. So, of course, when he like looks back at the little girl, and she gives the little disapproving like face, uh, he rests his head against the window, puts back on his wedding ring, and then all of a sudden things start going weird. See, while he was talking to the lady, you get these really cool sound cues. Now, they're not always the best. Sometimes they are in your face. Like, this is a little in your face, I think. But I think the sound design for the movie is pretty well done, and I think that he can use sound relatively well. 
So while they're talking, there's these breaks in between the conversation where they go like through a tunnel, but it seems like things are, or they're passing over something above that causes like a, you know, whoosh type of like sound. Um, and it gets progressively closer as they start ending their conversation. And it's, you know, you don't really think much of it, but it's kind of like the sense of danger because every time that they hear it, he looks away for a second, like, huh, that's weird. Huh, that's weird. But because of the way that Bruce Willis is acting, you're just kind of like, uh, is it really anything? Like, he's not being over the top, but he's definitely being more of his, like, cool, suave type of guy, uh, like he normally is in some of his action films. So, when he finishes talking to the lady, and like I said, he gets the girl's look of disapproval. I think I've said that three times by now. Uh, maybe Beetlejuice will show up. No? Okay. So, he gets that, and he rest his head against the the wall and then all of a sudden he starts noticing around the room that people are starting to freak out a little bit that some people are gripping the edges of their chair a little bit tighter than normal that the train seems to be moving a little faster that something may be going on and then all of a sudden it cuts to black now i'm gonna warn you at uh right at this point and i should have warned a lot earlier than this but it's the way that the audio works in this film and basically what's going to happen uh, is that in some scenes, like the reason I say this movie is slow is because of the dead silence that happens in this film. Now, not every clip is going to be like this. And I improved the way that the clips were being truncated because I didn't want to go back and redo, you know, the first 40 minutes of the film and redo everything that I had done. But about that point... When we get toward the halfway point of the movie, it's going to sound a little better. It's not going to sound as quick. Because, like, to give you an example, there was one scene that was about 3 minutes and 30 seconds long that I sat and I recorded the whole scene. But because there's so much fucking pausing in between lines of fucking dialogue, that it's like I cut it down to a minute. Like, it is so fucking short. Like, the actual interaction time is a minute in the way that's cut. In some cases, I cut it down to 40 seconds from, like, 2 minutes and 40 seconds. So, 2 minutes of fucking silence were cut out of a scene. Because the scenes would go, and I'm not fucking exaggerating, and I'm actually giving you less silence in between these scenes, they would go like this. Hey, David. Yeah. Uh, how was your interview today? It was fine. Like, literally, that is the amount of fucking silence that you get in these scenes. It's so fucking ridiculous that you can cut so much out and it makes it so much quicker, but... I know that it loses some of the impact of the scene. So while you're watching it, it doesn't really, like, it feels like it's the flow and the way everything's fucking going and everything's fine. But when you're doing audio like this and grabbing it and, and basically, you know, making sure that things are at the right volume and you can hear everything perfectly fine, it's annoying that you have that much fucking dead space. So, fair warning, some of these, they're going to seem a little bit mm, shorter than they actually are in the scenes. So, and sometimes it's going to feel like it goes really fast. But I tried to correct that and actually leave some of the sounds in. 
Um, but hopefully it was enough. I know the ones that are later, they sound a little better. Because normally when I do these things like that, like, it's not this bad. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the way they are. Especially when you've seen the movie, you notice it right away. So, basically, after the little crash happens, well, I should say, when the scene turns to black, that's when we meet his son, Joseph. And his son is basically at home, on the couch, watching TV, flipping through channels, and then he comes upon the news story about the train. That's what he failed to realize. I look classy, not trashy. I look classy, But I'm afraid you forgot this and this and... Where is you be, banana? How it got your weasel? What? Some cars are still on fire and, and the debris is everywhere. We are not sure at this time uh, how rescue personnel will be able to get on scene at all. If you're just tuning in, East Rail train number 177 has derailed just outside Philadelphia and we're bringing you live coverage from Skycam 4. Yeah, that is, uh, appears to be a rescue ambulance so Joseph gets up off the couch and he runs over to the kitchen because there's a little sticky note on the wall that tells him which train dad is coming in on. And of course, it's on that train. We then go over into the hospital and we see that there is a bunch of like kind of chaos going around. And we see that David has been approached by a doctor. Now, before we get into the clip for this one, because it's really almost by each other, um, this scene is really, I believe it's really well shot, in my opinion. I like the way that it's framed. I like the fact that as they're talking, the guy that's in front of them, if you're not really paying attention, you don't notice that he's basically dying in front of you. He's all bandaged up, and as the scene goes on, you have... Uh, blood that is just slowly pouring, like, or pulling into the bandages in front of you. The Around the neck, like, you can see a little bit of the blood, or if that's towards the head. I'm not sure which way that is, but the body that you're seeing right in front of you is slowly bleeding out as the scene comes to a close. It's really well done because you see, like, kind of the shock on his face. And there's a lot of, you know, like I said, the sound in the scene is well done, too, as we get into the second part of the scene. It's really just so interesting to see uh, how everything plays out and what's going on with him as you're trying to listen to the doctor. Like, you get that feeling like if you were in that situation, you'd be confused as hell, which he looks like. And you'd also be, like, kind of just in shock for what's going around you and trying to focus in on what the doctor is saying at the same time as what you're seeing of the man that's dying right in front of you. Hi, I'm Dr. Dubin. You're in the emergency room in the Philadelphia City Hospital. You're in a serious accident. Look at me. How are you feeling? Okay. Good. I'm going to ask you some questions. Have you ever had any heart or asthma problems in the past? No. Kidney or renal problems? No. Any allergies? No. Where were you sitting on the train? Against the window. In the passenger car? Yeah. Where are the other passengers? Was your family traveling with you? Did you get up from your seat? 
Are you certain you were in the passenger car? Yes. Why are you looking at me like that? Your train derailed. Some kind of malfunction. They only found two people alive so far. You and this man. His skull was cracked open and most of his left side was crushed. And to answer your question, there are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems in a few minutes that you will officially be the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, because you didn't break one bone. You don't have a scratch on you. So when he comes out of the scene, all sound basically becomes devoid, except for that kind of background sound that you hear at the end. He walks out into the lobby full of people, and everybody is looking to see if they have a loved one that has survived, if there's anybody that can recognize, and the only people that get to meet up with anybody is his wife and his son. They all gather together, they all hug each other, and then he holds his wife's hand for a second, but then she lets go. So there's something either that, like, when you think about it at this point, in terms of their relationship, which one is it? Like, is it the fact that he's just a fucking asshole, and like, he's done something, and that's why everything is going on? Or is it because she has something, some type of insecurities, and that's why he's doing it? Like, maybe he shouldn't have tried to flirt with a girl that's now dead on the train, but <laughs> that's kind of a fucked up thing to think. Like, oh, the fact that he got rejected may be the only reason that he survived, but I'm not saying that's true, but he is the only survivor, and he did hit on somebody, and he did get rejected, so maybe that's why he has these powers, but nonetheless, he's the only one that survives, and there's nothing wrong with him. He has absolutely no injuries, he didn't break any bones, he doesn't even have, like, a cut on him. He's a little dirty, though, okay? So he can't save himself from dirt, and he looks like Mr. Clean in this situation, honestly. (laughs) Which is terrible to say, but, you know, he's been working hard, Mr. Clean has. So, they leave, and they go back over to the house, and he goes upstairs and basically sleeps uh, with his son, well, this is, it sounds so terrible. Uh, so she, you know, asks him about whether everything in New York was okay. Like, is everything okay? And he basically, instead of him saying like, oh yeah, I'm fine, but I'm a little weirded out right now. He's like, no, uh, I don't know if I'm getting the job in New York. And, um, uh, yeah, um, uh, I'm still moving there though, because, Because why? Because fuck you, that's why. I'm going to go upstairs and sleep in my son's bed. Not sleep with my son. Um, And basically shares the room with his son and they sleep in separate spots. So again, we know there's something that's going on in the relationship. We just fucking don't know what. And I really... Like, if you're going to include this part into this film, why don't you tell us what has gone wrong between them? Like, show me something. Like, we learn about like how they first meet and everything like that. But we don't know what has caused this, like, rocky relationship, other than something that he says much later in the film. And again, I seem to say this all the time. We'll get to it when it comes to that point. So he goes next morning to the funeral, and just imagine having to sit through all these names, and it's nonstop, and you're the only survivor that actually shows up. Sarah Elliston. 
social worker at Broad and Locust Community Center. We pray for your soul. Kevin Elliott, businessman, father of six, we pray for your soul. Glenn Stevens, researcher in the area of leukemia at Drexel University, we pray for your soul. Jennifer Pennyman, third grade teacher at Jefferson Elementary, we pray. So that's one of those scenes where you hear it being like truncated down. You can actually hear the silent gap there. Um, that's one of those ones where it's like a minute and 30 and I brought it down to 30 seconds. So it's interesting, but it's also kind of sad at the same time that you were sitting there and just listening to all the names. You see all the pictures of every one of those 176 passengers that died and he's like the 177th or is it 170 somewhere around there it's in the it's weird because the train number is 177 and that's about how many passengers were on the train and only one survived which of course is david so david walks back to his truck and he's getting ready to go home because of you know the best thing is to pay respects and it's kind of odd in this film because i would expect there to be like some type of outrage at some point to where you know, you would seem like a family. How come you were the only one that survived? How come in like him getting survivor's guilt? But none of that really happens. He's never guilty about surviving this accident. He just kind of is like, huh, I'm just going to go on with my life. And that's the way it's kind of treated in the film, too. It's really weird. See, he gets uh, a letter on top of his car from some place called Limited Edition. And it basically asks inside, how many times have you been sick? And so he's kind of contemplating it. He goes home again and it's kind of in the back of his mind to where the next day when he shows up to work as a security guard at a local college football stadium, um, or I'm not sure if it's high school. I think it's college. It looks like it's college ball. Uh, and so he goes into the office. He's going to talk to his boss and he wants to find out how much sick time has he actually taken? Yes. Is Nolan, ma'am? No, sir, he is not. I read about you in the paper. I was in an accident once, too. Force almost trampled me to death. Had him put down. It's a sad story. Could you ask Noel something for me, please? Proceed. Would you ask him to check how many sick days I've taken since I worked here? That the entire message? Yes, ma'am. So, okay, she's like, yeah, you know, I was in an accident too. I was involved in the car accident. And he's just kind of like, oh, okay. But, like, how do you compare that to what he just went through? Like, it feels so ridiculous. Like, yeah, I was in an accident. Whatever. Everybody's been in a fucking accident before. Fuck you. Were you in an accident on a train where it killed 170-something other fucking people, lady? Like, no. Were you the sole survivor of your fucking accident? No. And she's just like, well, uh, I was in an accident. And, uh, you know, I survived and everything was okay. It was just a car, though. Can't take your message. And then when he asked her, she just go, proceed. Like, why are you being such a bitch? Shouldn't you be like, why the fuck are you at work? And the fact that he's at work, not missing another day of work, when he just was involved in a giant fucking accident, why is nobody like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be here. Why don't you take some time for your mental health for a little bit? But no, instead his boss, when he finally confronts him, offers him a raise. Hey, no. What, you hit your head on that train and 
Get your brain to start working again? What? $40. $40 what? You're getting a $40 a week raise, that's it. I checked, you were right. You're never taking a sick day. Five years, no sick day, I get it, you want a raise. Smart way to make your point. So five years? Five years and you've never taken a sick day? Like, are you just going through the doldrums of your fucking life and you don't even notice that in the last five years you haven't taken a sick day? Why does it take this giant fucking train wreck for that to happen? Then a card, okay, that asks you that question. Rather than being like, oh, fuck, you know, I came out of this okay. What? How? How did that happen? Like, you just take it, oh, I must have been lucky. That's it. I'm, I'm just... I'm just okay. There's no problem. Like, why wouldn't you start asking yourself these questions almost right away when you were the sole fucking survivor of a giant fucking train wreck that killed over 170 people? Like, it makes no fucking sense why at this moment, this specific moment in time, because you got a card... That everything is going to like reveal itself and you're going to start thinking about it. Because you know what? I guess it's sometimes maybe he just never thought about it. Like he just was going through the motions. Everything was fine. Just gets up, goes to work. Because that's what you do, right? You just get up, you go to work, you go to sleep. Get up, go to work, go to sleep. But the fact that nothing has really happened to you, like you haven't broken a bone, you haven't gotten a scratch... Uh, you've never hurt yourself during, and the, even the way that some of these things like pan out in the film, it makes no sense that he never, ever would have questioned it. So he even goes home that night and he talks to his estranged wife, Audrey, played by Robin Wright Penn, at least at this point. She's Robin Wright now. And I think she does an amicable, I can never say the fucking word, a great job <laughs> with this film. Um, but again, it's still a little bit like wispy, airy, you know, lots of posy type of things. And this is one of those scenes where it's cut down to almost nothing. Is Joseph okay? Yeah, he's asleep. I wanted to ask you a question. It's going to sound a little strange, but, uh, just think about it for a second, okay? Okay. When's the last time I was sick? Do you remember? Um, I, I don't, it's been a while. I haven't been sick this year, I know that. Okay. Do you remember me getting sick? Um... Not a specific day. What's this about? Audrey, do you remember me ever getting sick? In the three years we lived in this house? In the old apartment? Before Joseph was born? Before we ever got married? I can't remember. Do you think that's kind of weird? Not remembering one cold? Or a fever? Or a sore throat? I think it means. Um, it means probably too tired to remember. Too tired to remember? Come on, the guy looks like he's fucking tired all the time. Like, there's nothing else that's going on with his face other than, man, I am fucking bent and tired. It's kind of odd that, like, she's just like, she can't even remember the last time that he's been sick. He would think about it, too. Like, she would be more like, huh, you know what? I can't really remember the time. And it's odd that you're asking me this. Why does this come up now? Like, what happened differently, like, to make you think like this? But none of it is answered, and none of it is even fucking asked. So, from here, we fade out, and we go back to the past, and we see Elijah for the first time, 
kind of like in his room, grown up probably in his mid-years, maybe he's an early teenager, and he's just sitting in his room, and his mama really wants him just to get out of the fucking house, and to be normal, like, I understand where she's coming from, she's probably like, worked with him, the fact that he's lived a tough life, because he can break a bone at any fucking time, but she's really trying to get him out of his shell, and for him to actually be like, around the other kids and not just be somebody that sits alone in a room in the dark the entire time. No more sitting in this room. I let it go on long enough. I'm not going out there anymore. I'm not getting hurt again. This was the last time I told you. You can't do anything about that. You might fall between this chair and that television. If that's what God has planned for you, that's what's going to happen. You can't hide from it sitting in the room. They call me Mr. Glass at school because I break like glass. You make this decision now to be afraid and you will never turn back your whole life you will always be afraid i got a present for you why forget why you want it or not we'll go get it then where is it on a bench across the street so basically she hides a present across the street for him so that way he gets out there and he's like but mom people are gonna take it so well you better go out and get it then I love the actress that plays his mom. Like, the times that she shows up in this film are extreme highlights for me. She shows up in the very beginning, which is just kind of okay. But here, I fucking love the way that she plays the character. Because it really feels like she understands what his, like, his pain is. And the fact that, without understanding exactly what the pain is, you know what I mean? Like, she knows kind of what she's going through. It's a struggle for him. She feels that sympathy and that empathy. And just out of the short scenes, you can feel that. And it's fucking amazing. I really love this actress uh, for this role in this film. And she just, you know, she's there trying to encourage him. Like, look, you need to go outside. You need to be a regular person. Yes, you have these problems. But at the same time, like, you can overcome it. And you can still be somebody no matter if the kids call you glass. It's not really said that way, but this is the feeling and the connection I get to that character, and it's wonderful. So, one of the other favorite shots I've got in this film comes in this scene when she, like, the present that she leaves outside for him is a comic book, and it's one of the first action comics. And I don't know if it's actually a real cover or not, my knowledge on that type of stuff is very limited, so I'm pretty sure if somebody's seen it, you can let me know if it was just a drawing that was done or it was actually one of the original action comics. But it's upside down, so when you open it up, or when he opens up the box, I should say, he like you see it upside down, and you're looking down upon him, like directly above him. And so he turns it so that he can see it, and the camera turns with him at the same time, so it stays upside down until it finally makes that last rotation and focuses in like he's focusing in on it. It's also, this is where the purple theme kind of comes in, starts with him. Like, everything that is related to glass is purple, where kind of everything related to David is kind of in blue or in darkness, it's weird that we've got these two colors that are very similar, but are kind of on the opposite sides of the color spectrum for that specific color. I would say it's not really a purple. It's more of like a bluish violet that everything is used. But definitely the paper that's inside is purple. And then when you watch the film as it goes on, 
everything that he wears and everything that he does has that color associated with it. So we then see his mother talking and this is why like I really love the character how she encourages him and then we go into current day glass selling a piece of art uh to somebody to he ultimately rejects. Now I left these as one solid scene because I like the transition from her to what he's kind of become with his obsession over the comics and the artwork of the comics. Uh, and I cannot stress this enough. Samuel L. Jackson is the highlight of this whole fucking movie. And this scene alone is one of the reasons why I love his performance in it. I bought a whole bunch. Could be one of these waiting for you. Every time you want to come out here. They say this one has a surprise ending. This is from Fritz Campion's own library. This is before the first issue of the comic book hit the stands in 1968. It's a classic depiction of good versus evil. Notice the square jaw of Slayer, common in most comic heroes, and the slightly disproportionate size of Jaguaro's head to his body. This again is common, but only in villains. The thing to notice about this piece, the thing that makes it very, very special, is its realistic depiction of its figures. When the characters reached the magazine, they were exaggerated. As always happened, this is vintage. Wrap it up. You've made a considerably wise decision. Oh, my kid's gonna go berserk. Once again, please. Uh, my son Jeb, it's a gift for him. How old is Jeb? He's four. No. No, 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 no. You need to go. Now. What'd I say? Do you see any Teletubbies in here? Do you see a slender plastic tag clipped to my shirt with my name printed on it? Did you see a little Asian child with a blank expression sitting outside in a mechanical helicopter that shakes when you put quarters in it? No? Well, that's what you see at a toy store. And you must think you're in a toy store because you're here shopping for an infant named Jeb. And one of us has made a gross error and wasted the other person's valuable time. This is an art gallery, my friend. And this is a piece of art. I just love the look on his face that he gives. Uh, the hair could go a different way. <laughs> it's, it's a little too, like, mini-fro for me, but... It's still a fantastic, like, the way that he looks, the way that he walks, the cadence that he has, the face he looks, the fact that they picked a kid to look almost exactly what I imagined Samuel Jackson to look like as a kid is fucking amazing. Like, it's just, you can see the entire place, it's all just filled with fucking comics. And this is what a true obsessive, like, feels like. That the fact that they can go down into the base level of the comics and the way the lines are drawn and how, like, it's almost like he's a historian of comics. And it's so fucking beautiful at the same time. And you can tell there's a lot of love directly from M. Night Shyamalan to the world in the way that he writes about, like, how Elijah describes comics. 
It's fantastic. I love Samuel Jackson's deliverance of the line. I love his performance of the character. He is the reason to see this movie alone. Like, the acting overall is relatively good, but he is just on another level compared to everybody else in this film, in my personal opinion. Like, this was the time where I feel like we were becoming oversaturated with Samuel L. Jackson. Like, he had hit the big time. He got a little, lot of really big roles. And we were seeing a lot of him in our movie theaters. So maybe for some, this might have been like, oh, God, he's in another fucking movie. But for me, it was really like, oh, my God, I fucking love this guy. Like, I just feel that his character, the way that he performs, it's so great. And maybe at times it's a little bit too much of a, you know, <laughs> stereotype with the cursing and everything. And I understand that's what he does to get through a lot of his roles because he has a speech impediment for the most part. Uh, but I just, like, I don't know. I always feel he's one of those actors, whenever I've seen him in a movie, it's probably going to be, like, my favorite role of the film. If not, it's definitely going to elevate everything that's coming up, whether it's a bad movie or it's a really awesome movie. So as that customer now leaves the store, he leaves Elijah alone, and guess who decides to show up at the same time? Why, it is David with his son Joseph. And they go into the shop and approach Elijah, and first Elijah kind of blows them off, and then he says to him, I don't think I've ever been sick before. That causes Elijah to turn around and then start the conversation between him and David for the very first time. How certain are you that you've never taken ill? 75%? Well, that's not certain at all, is it? It's hole number one. I'm going to be extremely skeptical about all this. Oh, what? I'm assuming you've never been injured. Would I be wrong in that assumption? Dad's been injured. Is the child correct? Yes, sir. In college, I was in a car accident. Was it serious? He couldn't play football anymore. That's hole number two. That's a big one. Mr. Price, can we talk about the note that you left on my car? I've studied the form of comics intimate. I spent a third of my life in a hospital bed with nothing else to do but read. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. The Egyptians drew on walls. Countries all over the world still pass on knowledge through pictorial forms. I believe comics are a form of history that someone somewhere felt or experienced. Then, of course, those experiences and that history got chewed up in the commercial machine, got jazzed up, made titillating cartoon for the sale rack. The city has seen its share of disasters. I watched the aftermath of that plane crash. I watched the carnage of the hotel fire. I watched the news, waiting to hear a very specific combination of words. But they never came. Then one day, I saw a news story about a train accident, and I heard them. There is a sole survivor, and he is miraculously unharmed. I have something called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's a genetic disorder. I don't make a particular protein very well, and it makes my bones very low in density, very easy to break. I've had 54 breaks in my life, and I have the tamest version of this disorder, type 1. There are type 2, type 3, type 4. Type 4s don't last very So that's how it popped into my head. If there is someone like me in the world, and I'm at one end of the spectrum. Couldn't there be someone else, the opposite of me at the other end? Someone who doesn't get sick, who doesn't get hurt like the rest of us. And he probably doesn't even know it. The kind of person these stories are about. A person put here to protect the rest of us, to guard us. So basically what he's trying to say is that he believes comic books are real. 
and that they have become grandiose over the years, but that there actually is something out there for, like, it's kind of like, he says even the Egyptians, you know, drew on walls to explain what was going on. Basically, these are picture versions of what people have seen. But then, you know, you have your big artists that come through, and eventually just everything melded together. So, guys might have superhuman abilities, but at the same time, they're not exactly like what you see in the comics. They're more like everyday features. Somebody like David here, he might be very strong and tough, and of course he might have a weakness, uh, spoiler alert, uh, but, you know, it's not like he's also, like, got fire breath and he's got laser eyes and, you know, a little rock from wherever it is is going to make him weak or whatever it's going to be. But then on the flip side, there's somebody like Elijah, right? So he has basically his counterpart. That's why I go with the color scheme thing, where you have two sides of the same spectrum. They're both really, like, quote-unquote comic book villains or whatever they are. They both have superpowers, but it's in a different way. He just happens to have the antithesis of what David's superpower is. Where David, he can't get sick, he can't get hurt. Something can still kill him, but, you know... The, the opposite would be here, Elijah, who breaks every bone in his body due to the conditions that he has. So he's gone through his life constantly breaking limbs to the point that he, you know, fears stares as we learn later on in the film. So they continue to talk, but David thinks that Elijah is fucking crazy. So he sends Joseph out of the room, says, don't drink any water. In fact, just throw it out. And then tells Elijah that, you know, people like you, you talk to these people, and then the last thing that you want is your credit card. Basically saying, like, look, you're just a scam. You're like one of those uh, Nigerian princes that have come out telling me the world, and then all of a sudden you want a ton of money from me when you make me believe that whatever you're doing or whatever you're saying is absolutely true. So he leaves, he goes back home, but this, like, seed of doubt is still there in his head, so he still thinks about it. He still thinks whether or not what Elijah is saying is true. And so he looks through his records, and he looks at all the stuff. First, he looks for his gun, which is hidden in the worst place possible. It's, like, in the same room as the kid, and it's just up in the closet. That's where the gun is. Why you wouldn't just have, like, a gun safe or something like that? Who the fuck knows? You just have it stored up top. And it's right there next to all of the newspaper clippings he's saved. So whenever he had the accident when he was young, all the newspaper clippings are there. And then he just adds the train accident to the whole thing. Because, you know, if I'm going to keep a history of every time I got injured, I might as well just keep the record of every time it happens to me new. So maybe in a couple of years when he has that tragic helicopter accident where he's the only one that survives falling from 30,000 feet in the air, he can take that newspaper clipping and add it to the rest that he's got on <laughs> in his little scrapbook there. So uh, while he's looking at that, then his wife, Audrey, shows up once again. And this is one of those weird things where I don't think it should be in the movie i don't think this whole subplot really needs to be in the film but at the same time i understand why it's put in the film it's you have to have some type of like a lot of superheroes have some type of like tragic backstory or they can't live in the body that they live in right they're just not used to it they don't fit into the society they don't have normal things and maybe this is a way to show us that look that everybody can be kind of normal. Like, even though Superman ha has all these, you know, superpowers, you know, what about his home problems? What about the fact that he and his wife just aren't getting along like they normally would? 
So we have to interject these things here. And this is one of those weird questions where it's like, it's a fucking trap, especially when she says that I'll be okay with these things. I've come to a decision. Okay. I just want to ask you something, okay? And you can be totally honest. I'm prepared for any answer and it won't affect me. Have you been with anyone? I mean, since we've been having problems, the answer won't affect me. I just need to know, you know? I mean, it won't affect me either way. Anyway, my decision is that I want to start again. That I want it to be like it was in the beginning. And it's a big deal that you walked away from that train. I feel like it's a second chance. And if you feel like asking me out sometime, I'd be okay. So... This is where it kind of leads me to believe that there's something going on with her. Like, there was something in their relationship, and she doesn't really like it. Or she was feeling, like, lost and distraught. And maybe that's what pushed him away. And, like, she was just like, I can't deal with the fact. Or the fact that he pushes everybody away because of whatever it is in the back of his mind. Whether it's the way that he feels about his body. The way that he feels about his relationship. About his job. Whatever it could possibly be. You have it set up here so that, like, she was tired of him pushing everybody away. So she decided to push him away. And then when you come up to this, she's like, you know what? I've decided I want to try it again. I don't want to lose a relationship. And it's partially because of the whole crash. And honestly, it's not up until this point. And this is about, I don't know, 50 minutes in the movie of an hour and 46 movie where you she's kind of like distant for the whole thing. And then all of a sudden she realizes at this point that this is when it's like, oh, well, you know, the, with the train crash and all this stuff. It's not like when the train actually crashed. Because even when she went to go pick him up from the goddamn hospital, she, like, totally grabbed his hand and then just for the kid and then pushed it away. Like, oh, uh, I'm going to pretend like I'm happy that you're alive, but I'm not really happy that you're alive. You know, oh, my God, if you would have died, everything would have been okay or whatever is going on. And then it takes her this long to figure out, you know what, I actually would have been sad if you would have been dead. So I want to try to start a relationship over again. So, like, at the beginning of the movie, I am i really don't know if he's as smarmy or as, like, a creepster as I thought he was. You know, of course he's doing things that aren't very cool, but at the same time, if she's decided that she wants to be separated from him, and then he's trying to go out there and be, you know, we don't know how long this has gone on for, but if she's, like, basically, you know okay with it as she says but she's not okay because she starts crying during the whole conversation especially when he says no i haven't and then she's like glad oh we can start over again and you can take me out on a date so like i really don't know if it's like it was originally her decision and now she's changing her mind or what exactly did everything so from here we go over and we see where, you know, a normal day in the life of David when there's a game going on at the stadium and he does security. He gets a call on his walkie-talkie and guess who has showed up there to talk to him? Why is it do you think that of all the professions in the world you chose protection? You're a very strange man. 
You could have been a tax accountant. You could have owned your own gym. You could have opened a chain of restaurants. You could have done one of 10,000 things. But in the end, you chose to protect people. You made that decision. And I find that very, very interesting. Now, all I need is your credit card number. That last part was a joke. So that's just a callback to what he said earlier. I think it's one of the funniest parts in the movie because even this time, it made me laugh out loud really, really loud while I was watching it. And even when I'm listening to the audio in the background, I have to chuckle out loud while it's playing. It's kind of ridiculous because he's really trying to focus in on him and really make him believe in one way, shape, or form because he honestly believes it. Like, he sees this. He believes that these people exist. He believes that that guy is the opposite of him and he's like why would you go to this like you're not sure about what we've got here you're not sure if you've actually got the powers here but you yourself have chosen a life to protecting people and then this is shown by the next little sequence of events where he's walking around with him he's still talking to him and then he sees a guy he bumps up against him and then he kind of gets this like weird feeling and he does like the bruce willis turn like, you know how people do those slow motion turns? Or like Ben Steeler in fucking Zoolander where he's got the blue steel, right, in the Magnum. But, like, he's got the turn of a superhero type thing, but he's got that Bruce Willis face. Like, it's like the side of a fucking diehard poster or some shit like that. And he turns and he's got a lowered smirk. It's like, huh. Actually, that's more of a Nick Cage than anything else. But he turns, he's got the weird face, and then all of a sudden looking down there, he sees that there's this guy in like a camouflage jacket. And so he leans over to one of the guys and he says, start patting everybody down. Glass asks him, why would you do something like that? He's like, well, because sometimes people like to bring in guns and other things to stadiums and why the hell do you even need to bring that into the stadium? I mean, what, your team's going to do poorly and you think, oh, I'm just going to start shooting wild into the air and maybe they'll start playing better or some shit like that. Makes no fucking sense to me. But then you have, you know, so he starts patting everybody down on the line and that basically causes the guy to jump out of the way. And he's like, well, how did you determine that? And he's like, I just had a feeling, you know, after that. And they continue to talk it on the top of the stadium. How would you know that guy you bumped was carrying a weapon? I don't know. It was that camouflage army jacket he was wearing. Those guys like to carry hunting knives and stuff for show. You thought he was carrying a knife? he was carrying something, yeah. But not a knife. I got a picture of a silver gun with a black grip tucked in his pants. You know, like on TV. You have good instincts for things like that? Like what? Knowing when people have done something wrong. Yeah. Have you ever tried to develop it? I don't know what you're asking me. Your skill. Look, I gotta be down on the sidelines during the game. You can get to your seat right the down characters here. Characters in comics are often attributed special powers, invisibility, x-ray vision, things of that sort. Okay. I don't wanna play this game anymore. It's an exaggeration of the truth. Maybe it's based on something as simple as instinct. But he might not have been carrying anything. But he might have been carrying a silver gun with a black grip tucked in his pants. Done. I gotta go. 
So what you're trying to say is that David has like a sixth sense type of ability to determine whether or not people have like done bad things. Yes, pun intended. It's just kind of weird. Like that's part of his abilities. If he touches people, then he can get get like a little inkling of what maybe they may be up to or maybe if they have something or, or they have nefarious intentions or or whatever they've done before. So he tells them, look, I got to go down to the field because this is part of my job. Go ahead and take your seat. And he does. He But as he goes, he decides not to go take a seat, actually. And he decides to leave the stadium because all he was trying to do was talk to David a little more. And then he sees the guy walking away. So he tells him, hey, stop. I just want to know something. And he starts following after him. And this part is funny and kind of cool at the same time. Like, the funny part is him being a cripple <laughs> chasing after him. It sounds terrible, but just the way that Samuel Jackson is walking with the cane, it looks really ridiculous. Like, this is probably, like, the worst thing. And I wonder how many takes he had to do to get it in a way so it wasn't so offensive. Because it's kind of, like, on the edge of actually being a little bit offensive. So... He goes down there and then finally he follows the guy down to the subway and he's at the top of the subway stairs and he starts freaking out because he's got to get down them quick to go after the guy. But at the same time, if he falls, then he's going to break. So what does he do? He starts going down the stairs. He keeps calling after the guy. The guy doesn't stop. Honestly, if I was the guy, I would have turned around and be like, hey, look, stop following me, you asshole. Like, he doesn't say anything like that. He just ignores him, probably because he thinks, hey, a cripple is following me, so I don't have to worry about it. He's not going to catch up or anything like that. So eventually, he can't make it down the stairs, and he does slip. And this is another one of the really cool things that he does. There's a really cool like dizzying effect as he's falling down the stairs. The first thing that you see is the top of his cane comes down and then it breaks all over the ground. And so just like his bones, it's representing the glass that's there, right? So you see him and it's really quite painful to watch him fall and hear the sound effects of him breaking each one of his bones until he's left basically upside down like Joseph was at the beginning of the film watching the TV, looking at the guy running away. He jumps the turnstile, and when he does, he sees that the bottom that there is a gun that is hanging off of his pants that's silver with a black handle. So David was able to correctly identify what the guy was carrying on him. And those are the instincts that he believes that he has. From here, we follow David back home after the game has been finished. He doesn't hear anything of what's happened to uh, Elijah because that happened in the subways quite a bit of ways away. But when he comes home, he sees that his son's been playing football with the cornerback that the lady on the train was actually talking to him about. Uh, he explains to his son, he tells him, look, why are you trying to play football? Your mama is against it. Like, she's against it. <laughs> Everybody's against it. She doesn't like that foosball because it's the devil's game. Well, actually, there's a reason why they explain later. But, you know, he, she's like, oh, are you going to tell me anything? No, it's, no, it's not going to tell his dad. I'm going to go back and work out. And he wanted his dad to play football with the guys. But he decided, no, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm going to go work out. So his son decides to help him. And this is where we get what I call the angry dad sequence. Because he's basically, like, bench pressing a ton. But the son keeps putting more and more weights on it. And then, just like Ben who just wants more and more, um, 
he wants a ton of weights and they find anything and everything to put on there to basically increase the poundage that he can lift he's like well how much is this under when did he do it the first time and it's like 250 pounds and he's like i've never done 250 before you know this is really dangerous and the kid's like okay i'm sorry i'll remove the weights don't worry and then what does he do he puts more weights on instead and he does that he's like how much did you remove and the kid's like i lied i put on and it's like 270 that's on there and he's like well let's put on more and then he tells the son it's actually a really kind of fun kind of cute sequence and tells the son okay you got to back up you know just in case anything bad happens then you go get your mom in case you know something like it starts choking me to death or something like that so he puts on the weight and then they put on like paint cans on the end of it and when they put on the most weight the kid's like hiding in the closet at the same time so he's like the more weight he's going further and further away from his dad just in case it fucks up you know honestly even though he's just a little kid maybe spotting a little bit might be a little bit helpful but he ends up with 300 pounds on top of it and it's like he's never realized that he could actually like bench press that much before it makes absolutely no sense to me because you would think that you want to increase the weight, and I'm pretty sure that Ben could tell me exactly the ways that you'd want to do this to make sure that you're training yourself right, not necessarily staying with the same reps, unless you just want to stay in shape. But you might want to try more at some point, and then you'd figure out, hey, I can lift more, and then you put more. Oh my god, how much can I fucking lift? And then you realize that lifting is life, and that's the only thing that you have to do. You just have to put more and more weight on it. And eventually, he's going to turn to, like, Super Saiyan David or something like that. And he's going to start powering up, actually grow some hair out of that ball head, and be able to lift, like, 2,000 pounds or some shit like that. But it's just, it's these situations in this film, like, has he gotten himself into so much of a doldrum that he just doesn't realize that he actually has these capabilities? Like, here you go, here's even more weight, and then it's like, oh, well, it's uh, it's okay. You know, I just don't get it. Things like this in the film totally perplex me. Like, how come you haven't thought about these things for the last 20 years? Like, when you get in the auto accident past that point... Why don't you think that, hey, you know what, since that point in time, I've never been sick, or I've never broken a bone, or I've never had a cut, or, you know, maybe I've never tried to lift more than 250 pounds? Like, it seems easy for me. Why wouldn't I try more? Like, it all comes down to just these portions of the film, and what's going on in the film, that he finally, like, something clicks in his head that this is what I'm supposed to be now trying or something like that. Or because he wants to impress his fucking son that he's finally doing this. And maybe it's bringing him and his son closer together. See, it's just like they say, lifting weights brings the family closer together. So, from here we cut over and we see Elijah's in the hospital. And they're talking about the different types of injuries that he sustained. Fracture of the fifth metacarpal of the right hand, as well as multiple fractures of the sixth, seventh, and eighth ribs. The worst of the injury, however, was sustained to the right leg in the form of a spiral fracture. There were 14 breaks, simply shattered. They call me Mr. Glass. Who does? Kids. Are you all right, Mr. Price? Shall I continue? Pins were placed throughout the length of the leg. The use of a wheelchair will be needed for a two-month period. The use of crutches will follow for 12 to 14 months. Hospital stay will range from 5 to 8 days, followed by 9 to 12 months of physical therapy. Prescribed medication for pain management will take the usual forms of morphine drip. 
See, if I was in a situation when I was a kid as well, I would probably be like that type of person that just wants to stay back and absolutely does nothing because you hear all the different injuries that he has and his legs, and it's just like, how can you live with something like that? The fact that you take a small tumble down the stairs and basically you're going to have two years of fucking therapy. Like, he's like, the first one is going to be in a wheelchair for two, three months. And then you're going to have to go into, you know, physical therapy and that's going to be 12 months. And then you're going to have at least eight days stays in the hospital each time to make sure that everything works. So we cut over to the physical therapy center and we notice that who's working there, why it happens to be Audrey. And this seems a little too convenient. Like, all of a sudden he's going to show up and she's a physical therapist and he's going to be her patient. Like, he knows something. It's one of those things, kind of when you first watch it, you're just like, huh, that's a weird coincidence. But when you know that what exactly and how exactly the movie ends, you're just like, that's just a little too convenient. Especially the way they start their first chat together. We're going to prevent any substantial atrophy of your good leg with this, and it works your quadriceps. How long have you been married? Twelve years. How'd you get together? <laughs> I'm a little nervous being here. I ask too many questions when I'm nervous. A car accident. Oh. Now you're going to have to tell me more. <laughs> My husband was a star athlete in college, and we were in an accident together. Our car flipped on an icy road, and we were both injured, and he couldn't play football anymore. And if that hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't have been together. How so? I think we should talk about your rehab. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. So, tell me more about the quad machine. It prevents atrophy by... I couldn't spend my life with someone who played football. It's pretty much that simple. When I don't hate the game... I admire the amount of skill it involves, and, and like everyone else, I was in awe of the way he played it, but football, in many ways, is the opposite of what I do. You're rewarded the more you punish your opponent. You know, it's too much about violence, and I don't want violence in my life. It's not a thing many people can understand, but... Anyway, fate stepped in with that car accident and took football out of the equation. And everyone lived happily ever after. Sort of. What part of David's body was injured? Who said my husband's name was David? So it's kind of weird, see, that he automatically kind of leads everything that way. Did he know? Like, David never really told him that. Other than that, she was in a car accident when she was younger. You know, he kind of put two and two together. But it's weird that they just happened to be the two that met with each other. Like, it would be one thing. Well, she's a physical therapist. So maybe they have actually worked together before. And he never really asked about her life. And now all of a sudden he's finding out, oh, shit. This is her husband, and he's able to put two and two together. So I'm kind of okay with that, but at the same time, like I said, I really feel like this is super convenient that he happens to go to physical therapy, and the person that happens to be the one that's working with him is his wife. There's a small intermittent scene in between where David is inside the stadium now, another game happens to be going on, and he decides that because of the whole, you know, I can lift now, I'm a total lifter, um, that I'm going to start reaching out my hands and seeing if I can touch people. And while he's touching people, we hear the conversation continue between Elijah and Audrey. 737 crashes on takeoff. 172 die, no survivors. 
A hotel fire downtown, 211 died, no survivors. An East Rail train derailed seven and a half miles outside the city, 131 died, one survivor. He is unharmed. I've spoken with your husband about his survival. I suggested a rather unbelievable possibility. Since then, I've come to believe that possibility, however unbelievable, is now more a probability. And what was it you suggested? These are mediocre times, Mrs. Dunn. People are starting to lose hope. It's hard for many to believe there are extraordinary things inside themselves as well as others. I hope you can keep an open mind. So this does kind of freak her out because she doesn't know what the hell's going on and exactly how he is connected to her husband. But, you know, he gives his theory that there are super people out there and that her husband's one of them. And whether or not she actually believes him, but she wants to kind of, like, lead the conversation to, again, getting back to his physical therapy. We go back over to David, and he touches somebody who just happens to be the director himself, M. Night Shyamalan. Now, he does the whole, you know, Alfred Hitchcock thing where he appears in every one of his movies. He's always somewhere, he always plays some type of, like, I don't want to say pivotal role, but he always plays some, like, either small or, you know, at least worthwhile role in the film. And this is one of those ones where it's a little more of a red herring. He plays a drug dealer, basically. And he's in there, he gets touched, and he sees that the guy uh, goes into a garbage can, and he pulls out a bunch of drugs and puts them in his pocket, and then he goes over there and searches them. So basically, his powers not alone let him see what's going on, but they also racially profile people. So they basically go and pick the only Indian guy in the entire fucking stadium that you see, and he's the one that's targeted for dealing drugs. Uh, it reminds me of that old Patton Oswalt bit where he's like, cell phones are racist because, you know, it never really worked when I was in a heavily Latino area. So... <laughs> This is the way that it is here. Like, he's able to touch everybody, and the only guy he touches is him. Well, he does touch a lady who, like, basically beats her kids. Like, you hear the girl, like, or the boy that he's with, and, like, start screaming uh, once he touches, and you hear little sounds of, like, a belt or something in the distance. But no, that lady is okay. He doesn't go after that lady because, well, they haven't done anything in the stadium. All that she does is beat her kid at home. So that's okay. They can just leave that in the film instead. So he goes to, to over to pat down M. Night, and then he doesn't find anything on his person at all. He gets a call saying that, oh, hey, his son is in trouble, and he needs to go to the school and deal with his son. And he's like, wait, can't Audrey handle that? But no, the son specifically asked for him. And so M. Night asks, are you done with me? And then he just leaves him there, lets him go on with his day, and then goes over to his son's school. See, his son got into a fight, and he's sitting in the hallway with another bully who happens to claim... Is that your dad? I bet mind you I could beat up your dad. No, he, uh, he insisted we call only you. Though we had some trouble tracking you down. I mean, you're not on our list. Audrey handles this type of stuff. Oh, what type of stuff? Joseph's stuff. Do I need to put any smelly ointment on him or anything? No, no, it's more emotional damage, not, uh, not too serious physically. Nothing like when I sent you to the hospital. What was that? My office was on the other side of the building back. You don't remember me, do you? I had red hair. Well, you were a little younger than Joseph when it happened. Did you know that we uh, changed the rules of conduct around the pool because of you? 
The kids still tell about it, like it was some sort of ghost story. Did you know there was a kid nearly drowned in that pool? He lay on the bottom of the pool for five minutes, and when they pulled him out, he was dead. We let them tell it. Helps keep them safe. He's still phobic of water. It was Potter and another guy. They were messing with this Chinese girl in the dressing room. You can't let bad things happen to good people, right? That's your code, right? That's the hero's code. I tried to make them stop, but they kept pushing me down, and they wouldn't let me get back up. I thought maybe because you're my dad, I thought I might be like you. I'm not like you. You are like me. We can both get hurt. I'm just an ordinary man. No, you're not. Why do you keep saying that? So, okay, the kid that plays Jonah in this film is one of those child actors where it's hit or miss. Like, there are times where I think it's pretty good, but then there are times like that which sound real horrible. Now, luckily, the actor himself, he got out of the whole mess. He's actually been a part of Ages of Sealed and, I think, Animal something? Animal Kingdom? I think that's the name of the TV show. And he is going to show up in Glass as Jonah once again. So it makes me think if Robin Wright is actually going to be a part of it and if she's going to reprise her role as Audrey or they're going to kill her off. I don't know. We'll find out when the movie comes out. But... He basically went to defend a girl's honor, gets his ass kicked because he thought he was like part superhero like his dad, and he finds out that his dad believes that he's no, he's not actually a superhero because of the conversation he has with the lady there for the nurse's office, basically, that he was found, he was the one that was found as a kid drowning in the pool, and they set a bunch of rules for him. Well, and all the kids in the school because he almost died. And that's the only time that he's ever figured out that he's ever gotten injured. And you'd have to think that, man, that'd be weird if you can't remember anything, including that. So I wonder if they're trying to think of, like, this is, like, the origin story. He falls in the pool, he almost drowned, and he comes out of the pool alive and with superpowers. Great, I totally like that, but they really don't expand upon that. All we know is that that's a traumatic experience for him, and he can't swim, and he's never tried to learn to swim, specifically because he's one of the ones that fell into the pool, uh, or he is the one that fell into the pool and almost drowned. So later that evening, they're talking in the kitchen, and he's trying to still work with his wife because, you know, they want to try to reconcile and everything. And it's better than once at the beginning of the movie when they were spending the night in separate rooms together. Now they're in the kitchen talking with each other. And guess who shows up with a gun? Leave. I'll show you. You can't get hurt. That gun's not loaded. That's not where I keep the bullets. And you rookie of the year trophy. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. When did he meet Elijah? He was with me when I met him. No one believes him. Joseph, listen to me. Sometimes when people get sick or hurt for a long time, like Elijah, their mind gets hurt too. And they start to think things that aren't true. He told me what he thought about your father. It isn't true. I'll show you. Do you remember the story about the, about the boy that almost drowned in the pool? That was me they were talking about. I almost died. That was me. I'm not lying, okay? I just didn't remember it, that's all. You know your father was injured in college. You know that. You know all about that. Don't do it. He'll die, Joseph. I'll just shoot him once. Joseph, listen to what your (laughs) mother... 
Don't be scared. Joseph, if you pull that trigger, I'm going to leave. Do you understand? I'm going to go to New York. You're right. If you pull that trigger, that bullet is just going to bounce off me and I'm not going to be hurt. But then I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to pack and I'm going to leave for New York. Because I thought we were just starting to be friends for real. And friends listen to each other. They don't, and they don't shoot each other. Do they, Audrey? No shooting friends, Joseph. Joseph, you are about to be in big trouble. Now, I am your father, and I am telling you to put that goddamn gun down right now. One, two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it still makes me laugh every time I hear her say, friends don't shoot friends. It's so stupid. Um, so, uh, the, the, this scene is probably the most laughable scene in the whole movie. I get what's trying to go on. Like, the kid just wants to believe so much, and he doesn't understand why his father just can't admit to the fact that he is a superhero, that he's special, that he can't be hurt, he's got these superpowers, and that, you know, he's going to prove it to him. And how he's going to prove it to him? By shooting his fucking dad. Like, again, that whole gun thing comes back from the beginning where he doesn't have it in a fucking safe. He doesn't have it well hidden. Like, everything that he has is, like, he even hides the bullets in a trophy case. Like, what the fuck? Like, everything is very easy for the kids to find. Now, the second thing, and I haven't talked about, I can't believe I haven't mentioned anything to this point. It is how Bruce Willis fucking says Elijah. He keeps putting a J, like a hard J. It's Elijah. Elijah. Like, what the fuck, man? Like, aren't you listening to fucking Robin White, Brett Penn over there saying it? She's saying Elijah. Samuel Jackson says Elijah. You know, the son says Elijah. But you, you say Elijah. Ja. The entire time. Why? Why? Why can't you? It's not a Philly accent. It's not a fucking New York accent. It's fucking Bruce Willis. <laughs> Like, it's one of those things where Bruce Willis probably was told 15 times on set, it's Elijah, it's Elijah, it's Elijah, Elijah. And then finally, M. Night was like, fuck, fuck it. We're just going to say that this is some type of fucking accent that you have. And everything will be okay. But it's so fucking ridiculous. And then it's just so funny. It's like, you're going to start threatening the kid. Well, if you shoot dad, I'm going to New York. Like, what? I understand, like, there's the big fear because they might be separating. And you know what? They He wasn't going to go. He, everything was working out. But I'm going to threaten you now that, hell, I am going to go to fucking New York unless you put down that gun. If you do shoot me, I'm going to totally leave because we're becoming friends. No, you're his fucking father. You're not his fucking friend. Okay? You can be his friend when he fu turns fucking 20 and he can be on his fucking own. But right now he's a fucking teenager and he needs to not fucking shoot you. Don't go telling him, like, oh, well, we're going to be friends. I thought we were friends, and friends don't shoot friends, and friends don't piss on hospitality. Come on. <laughs> this whole thing is so god laughably funny, and the fact that they all, like, slump down and sort of, like, start crying, it's really fucking ridiculous and it's hilarious at the same time. Then you've got uh, him going over to Elijah and him telling him that, look, you know, I've been hurt. I've been whatever, you just leave us alone, and I'm not the person that you're thinking of, and that's just going to be that. Which causes Elijah to pout. 
basically goes into a comic book shop and he's left there. And we see that, you know, Audrey and David, they're finally starting to reconcile and they go out for a first date. But he's inside this comic book shop, and we'll talk about that in a second. It's fucking ridiculous, too. But he's in the comic book shop, and then the guys ask him to leave. And so the comic book store employee, I don't know if it's the owner or whatever, but he starts to move him out, and he's moving down the aisle. He pouts by turning one of the wheels and crashing his leg into the comics and spilling them everywhere. And on the third time, he says, if you do that again, I'm going to have to call the police, man. And so he does it again, and what falls into his lap, but an episode, uh, or a comic book, I should say, that is similar to what's going on with David, except for it's saying that his fear, you know, is like, oh, only the waters can stop him, or something like that. And it basically, he decides, oh, I'm going to buy this comic book, because this is something similar to what I believe is going on, which perks him and slowly brings him out of his funk. Meanwhile, while David and Audrey are having their nice little dinner out, they're talking with each other, and she possibly asks some of the worst, quote-unquote, first date questions. When was the first time the thought popped into your head we might not make it? That's not the game. It's the first date. There aren't any rules. Don't know for sure. Think carefully. What about the game? It's over. I won. Look, maybe it wasn't a specific moment. Maybe it was... I had a nightmare one night. And I didn't wake you up so you could tell me that it was okay. I think that was the first time. Does that count? That counts. Do you knowingly keep me and Joseph at a distance? Yes. Why? I don't know. Just don't feel right, Audrey. Something's just not right. You resent us, David? Resent the life you have? I mean, there were a lot of other things you could have done after college. These were your choices. You know, even if it meant we couldn't have been together, I never would have wished that injury on you. What you could do physically was a gift. I never would have wished it to go away. You know that, right? So... Her question is about the relationship. Like, I thought they're supposed to be, like, trying to rekindle everything. Not like, hey, when did you think that we were going to fail? Like, is that really a first date type of question? And then he's like, that's not really a question that you ask on this. Like, if we're just trying to have a good time and get to know each other better again and, and basically relieve everything. Instead of bringing up the fucking past and saying like, oh, well, when did you think you, we were going to fail? I'll tell you when. And of course, he tells him when the nightmares would come and he didn't want her help getting rid of the nightmares anymore. So... I kind of get it, I understand it, but it's just such a weird situation that they've got going on here and that you would even ask this type of question when it comes to this. So past this, they go back to the house and they meet up with a babysitter and she's like stupid and whatever. It's really fucking annoying. And so she goes back to bed because they're going to go and try to you know reconcile because of course the way to reconcile is to do that. And he decides to listen to the messages that are on the machine. And one of the ones that she said, the babysitter said that she actually got, was that he got the job in New York. Which causes kind of like a uh, quiet, like, you know, settling. She's like, well, 
This is new, so we're working it out, and you can go ahead and go to New York while we're doing this, and then maybe we can join you there after whatever. And it's just like, come on, and you know what you want. You want them to say, don't go over there, we'll work it out here. Isn't that going to be better for you guys anyway? But no, we have to leave some sort of weird, stupid melodrama in the film. And then the second message happens to be from Elijah. David, it's Elijah. It was so obvious. It was this one issue that brought it back for me. Century Comics 117. That's where this group, the Coalition of Evil, tried to ascertain the weakness of every superhero because they all have one. Just like you. Your bones don't break. Mine do. That's clear. Your cells react to bacteria and viruses differently than mine. You don't get sick. I do. That's also clear. But for some reason... You and I react the exact same way to water. We swallow it too fast, we choke. We get some in our lungs, we drown. However unreal it may seem, we are connected, you and I. We are on the same curve, just on opposite ends. The point of all this is we now know something we didn't. You have a weakness. Water. It's like your kryptonite. You hearing me, David? I do like, again, how the sound changes in this part of the film. That it's almost like he's talking directly to him towards the end of the message. The rain on the outside slowly disappears, and his voice becomes a lot more clearer, like he's in the room or inside of his head as he's talking to him. So what does David decide to do? He decides to go to the crash site, because, of course, that hasn't been cleaned up yet, and it doesn't have any type of police around there, so you can just drive right up to the fucking trains that were fucking destroyed over there. And what does it do? It makes him think of the night of the car crash that he had when he saved Audrey's life. So we go back into the past, and we see the car flip, and we see that he's outside of the car, and he's perfectly fine. He did not get injured during that night. And just like Elijah had told him, look, the reason that you said that you got injured during the accident was because of her. Because she didn't like football. You were in love with her. The fact that football may only last, what, five, maybe ten years, and then you're done with it, but love is eternal. And you could have her for the rest of your life instead. And it didn't quite work out the way you thought it was going to be, and maybe you totally like regret the fact that you didn't do football, or maybe you would have done things differently, or you put yourself into the shadows, and you put your like special powers away, and that's what's eventually going to make you happy, is being able to actually use those powers once again. So, he in the flashback, you see him on the side of the road, and then he runs over to the car, because she's still trapped in there, and then, without hesitation, he rips open the door, and is able to pull her out, and everything's okay. You see a guy come up, he says, oh my god, what's happened? He's like, oh, she broke her legs. And for him, he's like, are you injured? And he doesn't say anything. He's like, are you injured? And doesn't say anything. And then it just fades away. And we see that he's back and he's talking to uh, Elijah over the phone. Hello. I wasn't injured in that car accident. David. I've never been injured, Elijah. What am I supposed to do? Go to where people are. You won't have to look very long. It's all right to be afraid, David. Because this part won't be like a comic book. Real life doesn't fit into little boxes that were drawn for it. 
So after talking with Elijah, he decides that he's going to go to the subway system and then play grab ass with everybody. He reaches out his hands and he lets them touch the people that are walking by and he sees all different types of things. Anywhere from just random creeps to thieves to hate crimes to somebody that's about to rape somebody inside of one of the scenes or has raped somebody. And as he's walking over, he decides that that's probably the worst one and he can go after the guy. He bumps into a janitor where he sees this horrific thing where he shows up to these people's house and kills the father of the family right away. Basically stands at the front. He's like, can I come in? Can I come in? And he's got like a beer in his hand. And then he kills the guy. So he decides to follow this janitor back to his house. And that's where you get the iconic, like, weird um, <laughs> rain jacket, like, hoodie thing that he's got going on uh, as his superhero. And he goes into the house. And he finds two young kids in one of the rooms, and he frees them. Then as he goes up to the bedroom upstairs, and he sees the wife or the mother, that's she's all tied up, and he's about to go help her, the janitor shows up and actually knocks him into the pool. And he's struggling. Now see, a lot of people are like, oh, it's because he can't swim and blah, but he actually gets tangled up in, like, the pool cover. So... Like, that's actually what's killing him. It's not the fact that he can't swim. It's the fact that he's kind of wrapped up in that. And as he's drowning, once again, he sees a pole put into the water. And it's the little kids outside. And they're actually able to hold it well enough so that he can get to the top and get out of the pool water. Uh, He still brings them back inside. And then he confronts the guy in probably one of the best scenes to represent his power. See, he's not just your regular, like superhero he's gonna know how to fight already he's basically got morals or whatever that shit no he's here to basically choke the guy out to death and when he does that like he uses his security guard powers that's exactly what he has and he wraps his arm around his neck and he starts choking the guy and the guy is literally slamming him into the wall and it's not phasing david at all he's leaving giant marks in the back basically you're seeing what the power that this guy has but because David can take the punishment and he's not getting hurt, he's able to hold onto that choke and chokes the guy out dead. And so he frees the mom only to find out that she's died as well, calls the police and escapes the scene. And then there's a thing in the paper the next morning. Uh, as Jonah comes down, well actually he, before the morning happens, he goes back and he crawls into bed with his wife and he tells her, I had a nightmare. Hence referencing the scene from earlier, meaning that if there's something and there's something between them once again. So once they get up in the morning, they're waiting at the table and Joseph, who I think I've been calling Jonah for quite a while on this goddamn podcast, but fuck it, I'm not going to change it. (laughs) Joseph comes down to the table and Joseph is amazed that his mom and dad are actually talking with each other and enjoying each other's company. Uh, the mother basically says something along the lines of, hey, make sure that, you know, Elijah, if you see him, you call the cops because he's a creep. We don't have anything that we want to do with him. And, you know, David, he agrees. And so does Joseph. While Joseph is getting his breakfast ready, pouring himself some nice Tropicana product placement orange juice. Uh, that's when slowly David uh, scoots a paper over the kitchen table and there's a drawing of him dressed in the, you know, raincoat. And then he looks up, Joseph reads the article, looks up at his dad, and he shakes his head, yes, and then puts his finger over his mouth, basically to say, shh, don't say anything. 
And then Joseph has this giant grin on his face where he realizes that his dad is really one of those heroes that he was talking about and that he was right all along. And so he should have just fucking shot his dad. That's basically what he's telling him right here. He should have taken that gun and shot him because that would have totally proved it instead of him almost dying in a fucking swimming pool. But nonetheless, uh, he decides that the next day he's going to go over to Glass's now gallery that's going to be going on. Or should I say Elijah? And he runs into Elijah's mom for the first time. And once again, we get a great performance out of the actress. This is one of Johan Davis's earliest drawings. See the villain's eyes? They're larger than the other characters. They insinuate a slightly skewed perspective on how they see the world. Just off normal. Doesn't look scary. Mm-hmm, that's what I said to my son. But he says there's always two kinds. There's the soldier villain who fights the hero with his hands. And then there's the real threat, the brilliant and evil arch enemy who fights the hero with his mind. Are you Elijah's mother? I am. I'm helping him with the sale. Nice to meet you. I'm David Dunn. He's spoken of you. Says you're becoming friends. We are. Looks like he's doing good today. I'm very proud of him. He's come through a lot in his life. A couple of bad spills, I thought it broken him. Mm-hmm. They were bad. But he made it. Yes, he did. He's kind of a miracle. Yes, he is. I tell him you're here. Thank you. So his mom notifies that David has arrived and they go into the back and that's when they begin to talk and he just like kind of thanks him for showing him what he's done and he totally admits that hey I am you know what you were looking for and then at that point uh, Elijah reaches out his hand and says this is the point where we shake hands. Now if you listen to the mom's speech you kind of got an inkling. But while you're watching the first time, maybe you're not really paying attention to what's going on. You're just kind of like, well, you know, we always said that there's two types of villains. There's the really smart ones, and there's the really brutish ones. And what is Elijah? Well, he is the smart villain. See, when David grabs his hand, and this is the big plot twist of the movie. This is the, what the twist of... (laughs) this M. Night Shyamalan movie, which is that Elijah has been causing all of these terrorist attacks, all of these crashes and really heinous things to find David the entire time. And that's why he has him shake his hand. It's weird that David has been able to hone that capability right away. Like he did the whole thing and he's, you kind of tried it out earlier, but he like perfected it when he went into the subway system. So when he's here with him and he grabs his hand to shake it, he sees all the terrible things that he's done. He learns that in a bar one night, he learns that if the fires of that building happen in the first or second or third, everybody in the building is going to die. You see him rig the plane accident that's going to happen on thing. And the last thing that you see him do is go into the conductor car of the train that David's going to be on and do something and leave. And the guy's like, 
you're not supposed to be here, but he doesn't fucking call anybody to like check it out or be like, hey, we're going to be delayed a little bit. I saw somebody weird inside the car. Let's go fix this. And said, nope, guy, weird guys in here. Well, let's just take the train because I'm fucking late as it is and I want to get fucking home. I don't know what's going on. And then he happened to be in New York at that time, I guess, because the train was going to Philadelphia, not to New York. It's just all kind of weird. So it's just an odd situation that you you have with all these pairings and you realize that everything in this film has been methodically set up by Elijah. To what extent? I don't know. Because like, say, meeting Audrey... I don't know if that was just happenstance or if that actually was set up by him. It wasn't set up by him to go down the stairs and fucking destroy himself. He really needed to see if he knew that the gun was there. And if he knew that the gun was there, like, what is kind of going on in the situation that all of a sudden he ends up in Audrey's presence to help prove the fact that David is what he thinks he is. It's really quite crazy and the last bit of this film is truly great. Like, this was what made me love this movie, not necessarily just like this movie. And honestly, it comes down to the character of Elijah. He's just so good, and everything is so planned out, and the writing is so good for that specific character that it makes me personally really like this movie. And so... We see that he takes on his mantle of glass in this last clip, and then the end theme plays, along with some stuff over the credits. You know what the scariest thing is? To not know your place in this world. To not know why you're here. That's... It's just an awful feeling. I almost gave up hope. There were so many times I questioned myself. I killed all those people. But I found you. So many sacrifices just to find you. mistake it all makes sense in a comic you know how you can tell who the arch villain's going to be he's the exact opposite of the hero and most times they're friends like you and me i should have known way back when you know why david because of the kids
and so that was Unbreakable. What you see during the credits is there's a set of, like, dialogue things. And there's some things in the beginning, too, as you're opening it, where they say, like, in their lifetime, a comic book fan will read one year's, one life year's worth of comics. Jesus Christ. So one year's worth of comics in their lifetime. And at the end, it says that, you know, David, he decided to turn in Elijah for everything that was done, and that Elijah is now in a mental institution because, you know, that's where... You know, he was still, like, believing that this is real, and it's totally real, but he was trying to find himself within that. Like, he didn't think he had a place in the world, and that if he had an exact opposite, that means that he actually had a place, and that was to be the villain. Um, I just, with the music and the score, as as he's doing it, and the the last words that he says, they, they called me Mr. Glass. It's just so good, and... I just, I don't know. I remember seeing this and being so amazed in the theater that this could be the ending of the actual movie and that I was just so blown away. And it sucks that, you know, M. Light is known for these twists and not every film has a big giant twist in it. Sometimes, you know, the movie, the twist is just something that is bringing something new to the equation. So, like, for example, The Visit, right? when you find out who really the grandparents are, it's not necessarily a twist. It's just kind of like, oh, this makes sense. Like, that's there. Like, it makes sense why everything goes really crazy and with with how it went in that film. So, and then you get, like, the happening where the twist is the trees, the trees, you know. It's fucking stupid. And it's just like, did we really need to do that? Like, it makes no sense with it. Even with something like... You know, the village, I thought the twist in that was pretty good, but then the signs, there's really no twist. It's just something really fucking stupid and ridiculous that makes me not like that film as much. So, it's, this is that ending, which it literally, like, I feel that with The Sixth Sense, you could kind of figure it out, right? It was still a little bit surprising and everything, but just how sympathetic you are to uh, Elijah in this film, when it turns around that he's the one that caused everything, you're like, holy shit. Because that scene where he chases the guy with a gun is more like he believes so much in the hero that here is... That moment where he's trying to prove that superheroes and heroes do exist because he believes so much in it. And when you find out the end, it's not for the fact that he wants heroes to exist. It's that he wants an existence for himself is where it makes it so much more powerful and so much more fucking surprising out of the whole film. So... If you can't tell, I really, really like this movie. It's not a horror movie. It's not a terrible movie, in my opinion. Some people don't really like it. It is quite slow. This second time watching it, like I said, and you can hear it in the clips. There's some jumps in there. That's because there's so much dead space that I don't need to play a four-minute clip when most of it is fucking dead air. And it does pick up as it goes towards the end, but I really wish there was something more when he actually goes and tries to be the hero. Like, I wish there was just a little bit more action, and honestly, there's just not enough for that part of the film. Like, I really wish they had fought it out, and then he threw him off thing, and then he came back, but instead, he's just kind of out on the ledge, he's not paying attention, he gets thrown into the pool. That's it. That's all we get. It's kind of weak, 
But at the same time, I get it. He's not a full-fledged hero yet. And hopefully we see the reason why he gets put into the insane asylum. And hopefully it's for some reason that he got caught trying to actually help people or something. And him believing that he is this superhero. Which he truly is. And we know that he is, right? Because if you've seen this film, you can believe that it's not, you know, fake, basically. So, um... With that being said, with the reviews for the film, uh, there is no gore to speak of. There's a little bit of blood in the beginning, and that's basically it. So we're going to leave it as a 0 out of 5. Nothing really strikes you. Crap Factor, it's a 2 out of 5. Like I said, there are some points where there's some bad acting from Bruce Willis. Um, I really wish that he didn't play it so sullen. I wish there was a little emotion, and as he actually... The scene with him and his son is probably the best acted part in the whole movie by him. But Samuel Jackson is a fucking gem in this movie. And the actress that plays his mom is a fucking gem. And even Robin Wren, uh, Robin Wright, uh, she does a pretty good job in the film as well. Uh, and the son, the guy that plays Joseph, is not the greatest actress actor in the world. He's not a good actress either because he's not female. <laughs> so, um, and then fun factor, I give it a four out of five. I think the movie is still really fun. It's really cool with the ideas that it plays around when it is not what I consider to be like amateur hour for setting up shots and stuff. And you know what? I could say that and I'm not a director. I don't fucking think, but some of the stuff's really fucking basic is what it feels like. And like, okay, why would you choose this? Because this feels really uncomfortable. Yet, you do the really cool scenes like him falling down the stairs. Not for him falling, but that scene. And then the scene with the comic book and how it swirls. And then how later on, in that dizzying sequence, him falling down the stairs, you get that shot. And even in the shots in the house, when there's a lot of... It's really creepy and terrifying in those little scenes. But it's only a small portion of the scene, the whole movie. So it's but it's still a lot of fun i think the writing is really good i think the dialogue is very good in this movie after watching so many films with so much terrible dialogue in it it's good to have a film where i can laugh and i can smile just as the way that it's performed so and again samuel jackson his elijah prince is so good like the clips in this don't do it justice. You have to watch him and actually see his emotions and how he acts, especially that scene where he falls down the stairs. It's fucking amazing, just the the look on his face. And even when he's in the hospital and he's having to deal with the fact that he's got more broken bones, and it's just like, ah, oh, it's this shit again type of thing. You know, it's he's just so tired of it, and he wants to understand where he fits. So it's very very good performance of the film so overall i'm going to give this four out of five shattered legs it doesn't quite reach the five out of five tier uh but a four out of five is still really good for a film that came out in 2000 that i believe still holds up just as well maybe it's a little slower than i remembered or that you remembered if you haven't seen it please do yourself a favor and go out and watch this movie, especially before Glass comes out, so that way you can have the full experience. So next week, of course, we're going to look at the second film that surprisingly has become part of the trilogy with Split. I think you have the wrong car.
I was sent to get you for a reason. Open the door! There's a flower on the pillows, a flower in the bathroom. Like, we're important. The only chance we have is if all three of us go crazy on this guy. Who is that? Maybe she can help us. Don't worry. He's not allowed to touch you. He knows what you're here for. He listens to me. My name's Hedwig. How old are you? Nine. I've never seen a case like this before. 23 identities live in Kevin's body. Who are you? Help me get out of here, Hedwig. Are you trying to trick me? I'll tell on you. Aren't you the clever one? An individual with multiple personalities can change their body chemistry ah! with their thoughts. Someone's coming for you. Who's coming? The beast. man here he abducted us and he's going to kill me we're meant for something something horrible the world will understand now the beast is real things to people and he'll do awful things to you so we're gonna look at split now mind you that around the same time that the split episode is released there will be a video review for glass so my suggestion is to make sure you watch both of these films you watch unbreakable and you watch um split because this one really only has one connection to the whole universe, and it's really at the end. We'll talk about it, but please, I do ask that you watch it before. Now, it is available on Cinemax. If you have Cinemax, you can add it to your Amazon subscription, or if you have some type of cable provider that has it, it is available on demand all the way until the end of the month, so please go ahead and try to watch it. I believe that it is also available on YouTube for free, but how long will that stay up there? I have no fucking idea, but I found it this morning, um, and it's totally worth a watch. So, January, I want to start January off right with two movies I do really like. Uh, so it's going to be a little biased, but there are some things we're going to talk about. And we're going to make sure that this movie still does hold up from when I last saw it. I remember not even thinking that, like with the advertisements that were out there, there weren't a whole lot that said it was an M. Night Shyamalan joint. Like, it was like that it's just split. Here comes James McAvoy. He's playing all these crazy characters. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know if I really want to see it. It doesn't, then Pat, he's like, hey, you want to go watch? I'm like, all right, I'll go with you guys. And I remember the entire time sitting in the theater, there were these two teenagers that were making out in front of me on the left. But it was like, just watching the movie, I was just amazed at how well James McAvoy portrayed that character. Um, so I'm sure that it's going to be a lot of fun. That one's a lot longer. That's almost two hours long. So it's going to be a much longer podcast even than this, but I'm surprised that we hit the mark that we did on this. So, um, as always, you know, you can find the podcast on things like Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Spotify, Stitcher, 
all those fun things out there, make sure to leave a review and rate the podcast. If you love it, five stars. That way more people can see us uh, out there and take a chance and listen to the podcast. Um, you can go back, check old episodes out that you haven't seen before, see how it's changed. I do suggest if you haven't listened to this, your first episode, go back and listen to the Terror Vision one, which is number one, a lot of fun. Uh, check us out, facebook.com slash terrible terror podcast, Twitter, T underscore T underscore podcast, and YouTube, the terrible terror podcast, where there will be the roof for glass up. Uh, there is one for escape room at this point. Go ahead, check that out. And as always, uh, I will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening, and join me next time for Split. Split.